Welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Friday, October the 30th. Ooh, tomorrow's Halloween. Coming up, we talk to an expert on stigmatized real estate. What are the rules on disclosing a house may be haunted to a potential buyer? And Guelph guitarist Adrian Rasso will join the show. He'll talk about how one of his tunes ended up being featured in the latest Borat film. But first, I'm going to turn things over to someone that knows a lot about the pandemic and knows a lot about um, modeling and uh, where we could be headed with regard to this pandemic. You've heard her on the show before, Dr. Martha Fulford. She's a disease specialist and associate professor at McMaster University. And doctor, I think you said the most um, interesting thing at the beginning of this pandemic to me, and I've kind of kept it in the back of my head. You said we're going to have to learn to exist with COVID-19. Yes, I, I did probably say that, that, that we are going to have to coexist with COVID. So as we're trying to, you know, learn how to coexist with COVID, we get good news, we get bad news, we get uh, the province uh, pulling different jurisdictions back into stage two, a modified stage two that lasts for yet another week, and then that's lifted. Hopefully, people have their fingers crossed. But yesterday, public health officials in the province released new provincial projections for the COVID-19 spread through their modeling that they've been closely monitoring. And the province is seeing what they're calling a more gentle curve than is expected. Now, they're estimating a steady level of cases between 800 and 12,000 per day in the coming weeks. But what they say is we're seeing continued growth, but growth, but we're not really on a decline right now. But we're not going up that steep, steep curve. What, What did you take away from the modeling yesterday? Because Doug Ford seemed a bit calm about where we're going. I was actually encouraged by the numbers. Uh, Remember, modeling is our best educated guess as to where something's going. And lots of things can have an impact on it. And probably most important with an infectious disease is human behavior. Uh, Because COVID, as other infections like influenza, goes from person to person. One of the things that I really liked about the modeling was was actually the page that had the pie gra- uh, the pie chart showing, uh, giving us an, a sense of where outbreaks were occurring. And this, to me, is such a testament to the importance of public health, because it, when we see that and we can, say, uh, we can see where we're starting to get cases, it allows for much more targeted interventions and, and probably not then mandatory lockdowns, because Canadians have, and, and Ontarians have shown themselves to be remarkably good at following uh, public health advice overall. And so if we can say in a community, uh, whoa, you know, you guys be careful in uh, certain industrial settings, because I can see, for example, in New York that that was an area or in Peel, and then we can try to control that. Okay, so uh, and, if you and, could... I don't know if you recall any of the pie grapher specifics or even yeah. if you can speak generally yeah. about it. Can you tell us where most of the um, infections were occurring? Well, right now, if you look at them, um, long-term care and schools show up. But, of course, you have to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because, of course, that's where we're doing by far and away the most testing. But it does help us. Uh, schools is not a surprise. It's controlled. Fortunately, we do really good tracking there. And equally, fortunately, those are not uh, the people that that end up being hospitalized. But it does help us guide guide things. And I, for example, personally was quite pleased to see that gyms have not, in fact, been uh, a source of, of outbreaks. So hopefully that's something that can be reassessed. And likewise, actually, it's interesting, restaurants probably not as, as serious as we expected. And so I think, again, it allows public health to give really targeted advice 
on where we're seeing things go. And remembering that our objective here is not to eradicate COVID. I, I think we're all acknowledging that this is here to stay. Our objective is to have a really controlled spread so that the people who are vulnerable, who are the elderly, don't overwhelm our hospitals. And so having this slow, gentle curve is exactly what we were aiming for, this, this so-called flattening of the curve. I just want to bring up something that uh, the coroner, um, our chief coroner, brought up yesterday. Mm-hmm. And he had said that uh, the seven-day average of new cases is nearly 900. Um, it, that's a new record high, but it still gives you, I mean, you still are optimistic about where we're at? Can you tell yes, us why? Well, it, well it's, well, it's a little bit difficult because, of course, in the spring, we weren't testing anybody except the really high risk in hospital. So we're, we're not quite getting accurate comparisons to the real numbers, but also it's who is getting it. Because because COVID, uh, as it turns out, which was one of those uh, strangely good news stories hiding in all of this, is that really for most people it's not a serious virus, and so when the when the majority of the people who are currently testing positive are the younger populations of the demographics of whose positive uh, change, it, it does mean at least that our hospital system isn't overwhelmed. Uh, so I'm actually okay as long as those numbers stay more or less on that flattened curve because the thing that we really need to track are are is the hospital capacity the admissions the icu admissions which will happen but as long as it's at a rate that we can control it uh, and that our system is not overwhelmed and we can treat all the other incredibly important medical conditions that need to be treated then then we are on the correct path we as humans tend to, uh, you know, hear what we want to hear when it comes to information. Is the good the good news story that you know our public health officials and yourself are are talking about here with regard to the spread of COVID is that there is some slowing of the growth, mm-hmm. but there's still the numbers are still high, so they could you know uh, turn on a dime and we could end up with uh, yeah. a, a worrying situation. But um, most of most of the public health officials say this speaks to the efforts that everyone is making. And yesterday, we had an expert on from the U of T who has been looking at cell phone data, and we uploaded that um, interview up to our podcast uh, if you want to listen to it. But mm-hmm. um, it, it they download uh, cell phone data and crunch the numbers, and they realize that we're actually really doing well uh, at yes. keeping our distance from each other, and we've been doing really well in general. But my fear is that when we keep hearing you're doing really well, you're doing really well, despite the fact that we still have, you know, record high um, case numbers as far as the week's concerned, uh, the people will relax too much because there's a growing number of people that I've been talking to, whether it be on the show or just, you know, in passing, that doubt the numbers and also doubt the public health officials' actions and reactions to the numbers so I'm just curious if there's any worry there about people letting their guard down too much. I, I think it's important that a lot of what we're doing, the the physical distancing, I'm a, I'm sure you've heard me say this before, I'm a great ha- uh, fan of hand washing uh, and the masking, particularly in those crowded uh, enclosed conditions where you've got lots of people. And so clearly uh, overall we are doing a good job. I think it would be easier for all of us to continue to do that when we have this kind of very targeted information. I think one of the challenges, uh, particularly when when our numbers start to go up, 
it's no secret, of course, that our lab system was overwhelmed, public health was overwhelmed and not able to do this kind of, of data crunching as, as accurately. And so it does then lead to the impression that people don't know what they're doing with uh, our ability to, to have that fast turnaround time now with our labs uh, and uh, with public health. And that, of course, I cannot emphasize strongly enough how critically important both both the, the on-the-ground public health worker and our laboratory workers are. But when we can get that information in a timely manner, it really is helpful. Uh, and then I do think that you get more buy-in if you have accurate information and it doesn't look like it's, it's arbitrary uh, pronouncements. And so if, if as a population we listen, and I know that, that when the numbers go up, people do listen. Uh, in areas that didn't have restrictions, so the, any sort of mandatory shutdowns, and I think Halton's a good example, people did start to behave themselves. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but people are aware and they are cognizant. And I think the vast majority of us, when we're given sort of nice, steady information and targeted information, will in fact uh, do what we need to do. Well, we don't want to turn into a BC where they've actually just said, look, um, you used to have your safe six, now we're just saying... Don't let anybody else in your house that doesn't live there. But let's talk about contact tracing for a second, if I could. One of the things that officials also talked about when they were updating us on the pandemic yesterday is that figures show that 65% of COVID-19 infections among Toronto residents, they have no idea where they got it. Um, what do we have to do to, to you know, tighten up or, or um, better contact trace? Uh should we be keeping a log of where we go as we, you know, carry probably out our not. daily? Probably not. Uh, I mean, one of the challenges, of course, with with uh, contact tracing in a with a virus like COVID, is the challenge of uh, so many of us being either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. But it's also the speed with which you can actually ask somebody, "Where have you been?" And that's why the testing and the turnaround time are helpful. Um, but probably the most important are, are capturing the clusters, like Hamilton, for example, did a superb job with the Spinco uh, um, uh, outbreak. They identified it, they did the contact tracing, it was contained, and the excellent news there, of course, was that nobody required hospitalization and we were able to contain it. And so probably that's more important. And I think also we need to not, do any uh, blaming or finger pointing. There's been a little bit of this yeah. naming and shaming of, oh, those young people out in the park or it's those people not following the rules because it discourages people from, from being up front. This is nobody's fault, this virus. It's, it's a pandemic. It's unfortunate. We're not going to be able to stuff it into 2019. It would be nice if people didn't do any finger pointing or get angry or get confrontational. Uh, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think we just need to be very kind to each other. And I think that would also help perhaps people being a little bit more uh, aware and maybe a little bit more upfront because if we keep, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable sometimes when everything keeps being shut down. I think we're at a stage now where we know so much more about COVID that we're at a stage we can say these are the things we can do safely. This is how we're going to move forward. So if we see that there are outbreaks uh, predominantly in a certain sector, we, our reaction isn't shut it down. Our reaction is, aha, 
this is an area we need to look at so that we can improve what we're doing and people continue on doing what they're doing without pointing fingers. Dr. Fulford, you you brought up pointing fingers and I just want to interrupt for a second because this, you know, it's, it, it lends directly to what you're talking about. Brian Lilly in the Toronto Sun is pointing fingers at Dr. David Williams right now, our chief medical officer. And he is saying that, he owes the premier and small business owners across the province an apology and his resignation. I don't know if you're going to go that far as to say something like that, but um, was an over was this an overreaction in your opinion? Closing down gyms, closing down restaurants when we look at the modeling information and we're finding out that most of the outbreaks happen actually in schools or long term care homes. I don't know if we had this this breakdown available before. I I mean, so it's hard. I I can't really comment on that. What I really liked about this update yesterday was that we did have this breakdown. So I think going forward, any decisions would require this kind of parsing down of the data. Uh, And it would be very easy then to say, okay, this is where we need to focus our attention. And I was thinking when I said finger pointing at each other, I don't like confrontations. I don't like people yelling at each other because they may or may not have a mask on. There's a somewhat bizarre story about some people setting toilet paper on fire in a Walmart. Like, please. Yeah, Kitchener. Yeah, we don't need to to behave that way. Uh, So I I think one of the challenges earlier, and I'm not going to be finger pointing at anybody, we had an overwhelming amount of testing we need to get through. Clearly, in hindsight, we weren't doing a very good job on targeting our testing. This has dramatically improved. We have much better turnaround times. And with that, we have this kind of breakdown of the data. So going forward, I agree. If I look at this, it is hard to understand why restaurants and bars closed. If we didn't have this data available earlier, it becomes really problematic. And so it all fits together. It fits. It, we, we need to ensure that we have appropriate targeted testing for the right people, we need to make sure that our labs are as well supported as we can conceivably support them so they can do the turnaround time. And we need public health to be supported so they can produce exactly this sort of data so we can say this is where we need to put focus. And my Right, we can be strategic. Would, yeah, yeah, strategic. So my personal preference would not to be to, to put the, the hammer and shut everything down. My preference would be, aha, this is where we need to target education. And the reason I'm saying that is I think COVID is here to stay. I don't think we're going to get rid of it for a long time. And so we do need to learn to coexist. Well, that's not exactly what most people want to hear, I'm sure. I'm, no, I'm you've sorry. Kind of shackled <laughs> my buzz a little bit. but yeah. uh, No, no, but uh, the good news So is we shouldn't be pinning all our hopes job. on... Yeah. Right. We shouldn't be putting all our hopes on once a vaccine comes that this is going to be eradicated. We'll see uh, COVID-19 no. rear no. its ugly head. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I don't know. Uh, there are four circulating coronaviruses all the time. I, I, I and a lot of my colleagues think this will be number five. I want to thank you for your time, Dr. Fulford. It's always a pleasure, pleasure. talking to you. Have a great you day. Take care. Cheers. All right, I was uh, taking a look, uh, wandering around the internet as I do, getting ready for the show, and this caught my eye yesterday. It's a story in the Toronto Star. Would you agree to buy a property that is haunted? Chris, would you agree to buy a property that is haunted? Because you're looking for a home, I understand. What about a fancy one? What about one that already comes with an occupant, and they're uh, fairly invisible, let's just say? It's haunted. If I got a good deal. Really? Yeah. Okay, I'd I be a little freaked out, but I think I'd get over it. 
No, if if there's anywhere I need to feel comfortable, it's in my house. Here to talk about uh, stigmatized properties, properties where somebody may have been murdered, where they think there's a haunting. Barry LeBeau, he is an expert uh, on stigmatized property and real estate. Uh, Are you a broker? Are you an agent? Are you an expert? How would I refer to you, Barry? Um, it's an interesting thing. How do I? Sometimes I wonder what I call myself. Hi, Kelly. Good morning. Um, I'm a real estate broker, but I'm okay. also a forensic real estate expert. I do a lot of litigation work for lawyers where I'm an expert in court talking about stigma. Now, yeah. there's never been a court case in Canada where someone has said, I bought a haunted house. It wasn't disclosed to me. And um, therefore, I got sort of, you know, shafted here so i it's never gone before the courts but in the states if anybody's listening to this and is really interested there's a, there's a case called the nyack case nyack new york and a couple bought a home that turned out to be by reader's digest had said it was the most haunted house in all of the united states which it turned out it wasn't but these people bought it without knowing it they tried, when they found out, they tried to go to the deal. They couldn't. They appealed the case. They lost their case, took it to the Superior Court of the State of New York. The Supreme Court of the State of New York, in a three to two decision, said haunted houses are real. And wow. The, 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 now, why are they real? Because the people, the public, perceives them to be real. Right, and that can have real physical effects on you, correct? I mean, it's sort of like the debate on, on, and this is taking it in a different direction, but there are some people that feel those uh, uh, wind turbines that are around emit like a low-frequency noise. Whether they do or whether they don't has not been proven definitively yet, uh, and it can lead to all kinds of health problems. But if you believe it's going to cause a problem to your health, it actually could. Well, there's another thing. I mean, let's be a little silly here. And assume everybody's got a little bit of... Okay, so everybody's got an antenna on them. My antenna is picking up AM. Yours is picking up FM. I'm picking up one frequency. Why is it one person walks into a house and it feels nothing? And other people walk in and go, I got a bad vibe here. So yeah, listen, when I, I, I have that antenna. My husband and I went and saw, we were looking in Toronto years ago. We were looking at a house. I walked in. I said, I don't like the vibe in this house. And he's like, what do you mean? It's a great house. It's a great price. I said, something happened here, and it's got a funk about it, and there's no way I could live in it. And he didn't feel that. We didn't buy it because happy, happy wife, happy life. And I got in trouble years ago with uh, somebody because he wrote a book on how to buy real estate. And I said, basically, if it doesn't feel right, don't buy it. And I tell my right. clients all the time, if you walk in and the vibe's not there, we'll find another house. Don't buy a house where the vibe's not there. So when I teach real estate agents, and I'm, when we were pre-COVID, and I was mm-hmm. doing um, you know, live uh, seminars, um, I just did one the other day, a Zoom for 63 agents in Muskoka, and I asked the question, have you ever been to a house where you just don't want to walk through the door? Most of them say yes. It's a right. common question, a common answer. There's houses that just don't feel right. And why? Sometimes it's our own perception because Hollywood has given us this perception of what a haunted house looks like. 
Like sure. I, I'm a skeptic. I'm not going to say I'm not. I've had my own experiences, and I don't want to de- delve into them because I don't want to know. I'd rather okay, be ignorant. So <laughs> what I thought was really interesting, and I, I was under the uh, impression that under Ontario law as a real estate agent, you had to say if a property um, had a murder, was a site of a murder or a suicide or a death. No, uh, but that's no, not that's no. not true. No, and only Quebec. Quebec's the only jurisdiction in Canada that has a declaration. Now, there may have been some changes since I've checked all the laws, but Quebec has a mandatory on murder that it has to be disclosed because um, our courts in Canada, I don't want to play lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, but courts in Canada don't really deal with psychological issues. Hmm. The Americas, there are states that I have seen right in their real estate acts where it says you have to disclose a haunted house and they have that word right in it um and i've seen it in reading the different uh laws in the different states okay you were talking about this nyack case in the states right it was the most haunted house in the states and it it went all the way to the supreme court and they said yeah you're right uh but you said that and that actually isn't true what is the most haunted house in the states do we know Oh, it, it probably yeah, it was probably the Winchester House at one point, uh, Mrs. Winchester. Like Sam and Dean. Uh, Never mind. Winchester, like the gun, like the gun, no, like the gun. Oh, really? Like the the actual family that are the Winchester oh, yeah, gun is named after? Oh yeah, Mrs. Winchester was nuts. She felt that her husband's gun killed so many people. I believe I'm, I'm going to throw a number out. I think I'm wrong. Yeah. I think there are 73 staircases in the house that don't go anywhere, they lead to dead walls because the ghosts can't go through the doors. There's no doors for the ghosts to go in. But, um, you know, so they were the, the so famous... concerned about haunting based on, on yeah. the, the Winchester gun that they felt right. that their house was being haunted by people that had been killed by the weapon that her husband well, was no, responsible Well, the widow for? did. Mrs., Mrs. Winchester, yeah, in San Francisco, did this weird, yeah. weird house. But you look at some of the, the myths. If you get into the story of the famous Amityville horror story, you'll find out that a lot of it is Hollywood. It's not real. It really wasn't You've got to be kidding. No. No, there's something there, but it really hasn't. Look, I went to the Nyack house. I, I purposely, I was in Nyack a year and a half ago. I went by the house. It looks beautiful. On the water, it's gorgeous. Beautiful town, Nyack. But... Um, what happened is this woman that owned the bread and breakfast that the house was in, she started promoting that the house was haunted. And, of course, people were phoning. We'd like to be in room 3B or whatever because they wanted to be in a haunted. She did it to create an atmosphere, to create a lure. And it, 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 she, it she created her own, well, she created her own PR. And it got, it got to this ridiculous thing where Reader's Digest rated it the most haunted house in the United States. And it wasn't. It wasn't. It was a myth. So, okay, but do some real estate agents disclose, okay, you know, the previous owners feel that the house, there might have been some kind of haunting going on in the house, or maybe there was, uh, you know, a suicide that occurred in the house. Do most real estate agents disclose that anyways because they just don't want it on their plate? Or is it something they... Just say, I don't want to know. Don't tell me if anything bad has happened in the house. I'm not interested. Okay. I've lectured on this subject to a couple of thousand realtors in the last 10 years. And what we've discussed is legally we don't have to disclose. 
but I keep coming back to this all the time. You, you, it's good business practice because sure, the neighbor's going to come along and tell them, and then they're yeah. going to. Who needs their reputation? I don't need some um, person getting angry at me, and then they say, "Well, you knew." I said, "Well, I didn't have to disclose." Well, because I didn't have to doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. Um, I had a call yesterday from an agent where they, it's a, it's a gruesome story. There was a murder. Somebody cut off the head of their mother and threw it in the lake, and they've never found the head. Do you disclose that if they ever go swimming in the lake? That just head down there. This is an actual conversation from yesterday. Well, that's charming and also timed well for Halloween. Uh, I guess oh, at yeah. that, I, I, I mean, what else do you say, Barry? That's an interesting way to wrap the conversation. Well, you know, let me put this to you. Um, it makes for, there are people, I mean, I love my British friends. They always go, oh, we have a very lovely ghost. You know, they're so used to this stuff. But I'm yeah. also, last thing I want, I want to make one point. When I have studied this, and I really have, it seems that certain people, are susceptible or are open to this. Other people, no. I joked with a real estate group when I was teaching the other day, you almost want to take a little a little fluffy dog, and every time you go to a house, throw it through the front door. If a dog doesn't run out, you can walk in. Yeah, maybe place it through the front door. I'm just going to th- let a dog lover listen right. to the, the show today. Out, run, if the dog runs right out, run out. Barry, listen, have a happy Halloween. Thanks so much for shedding some light on, on, you know, what is the law around stigmatized properties and sharing some gruesome Halloweenish kind of stories. Appreciate it. All right. There's Barry. He's gone. He left. He ghosted us. I was ghosted. I just was ghosted by Barry right here on the show. Was he even here? Maybe he wasn't on the show. Does he even exist? Just Google Barry. Barry LeBow, 1835. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to the music of golf guitarist Adrian Rosso, which, if it sounds oddly familiar to you, you might recognize if you've watched the new Borat movie. Uh, the song is featured in the new Borat movie. It's called Earn Street tavern and here to talk about it adrian rosso joins the show adrian good to have you on oh thanks thanks for having me thanks for being here so you're based in guelph ontario just a you know a stone's throw from toronto yeah that's that's yeah just around the corner yeah <laughs> and so primarily what type of music do you play i know you're a guitarist yep um well yeah i'm known internationally for playing what we would call you know gypsy jazz or or mediterranean style music so that's what I'm yeah, primarily known for. So back in 2006, like many people, you took in the Borat movie. And, um, you know, like a lot of people, we get attracted to the music that we hear, the soundtrack. We might take notice of something and think, okay, well, I'm going to download that song or I'm going to download that soundtrack. You took the Borat soundtrack a, a step further. You fell down the rabbit hole when it came to a Balkan ensemble uh, called Fanfar Chio Carlia. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that correctly. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what struck you about that band and and where your obsession with them led to? Um, yeah, so of course the fir- first Borat film came out, and and I was already you know performing um, and doing the style, so we would have been performing you know gypsy style music, um, kind of more traditional like Django Reinhardt style. 
Love and it. Uh, then I heard this band and I thought, oh, that's fake. There's no way um, the horns could, you know, play that fast and so precisely and tightly. And so I thought, okay, it has to be, you know, like sampled or something. And so I right, manipulated a in a studio. Exactly. Yeah, because it just it sounded too just a little too quick to you know what we would hear in North American jazz. Um, so anyway, I did a little research and found out no, this band's actually legit, and they're from a small gypsy village in Romania. And um, I reached out to their management, and um, the management that we're all uh, with is Asphalt Tango Records, and they're based out of Berlin. And I spoke to their manager, and, and he said, um, yeah, they actually, as a fluke, they were going to be touring Canada. Um, so I said, oh, interesting. So he found out I was an artist. And, um, you know, we exchanged some songs back and forth. And then, you know, I said, hey, you know, the guys would really think this would be really cool if we could do a record together. And then that led so to... So wait a minute. You became um, a virtual pen pals, basically. Yeah, pretty well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it was... That's it was fun. Funny. Yeah, it was interesting. And, and then from that point, we just kind of exchanged demos back and forth. And then, um, you know, he said, Fenfari learned, you know, the, the, the three of the songs. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then uh, that was it. They came. Three uh, of your songs. Yeah. And then it ended up being that I wrote all the music for the like, the release of, for was basically it was released in 2014, which would have been Devil's Tale. And um, so that was all the music that I wrote. And then they guested on the record and we okay. performed. Let's back up a second. So you went into Metalwork Studio with, That's and right. pronounce the name of this this Balkan band for me pro- oh, yeah, properly. Fanfare Chiocarlia. Okay, so you went in with Fanfare Chiocarlia, and yep. you recorded your album with them backing you. So did you get any rehearsal time, or was it basically kind of like a jam session uh, where they knew your music because they had been rehearsing some of the songs, and and then in the ones that they they hadn't been rehearsing. They just backed you up and kind of did their thing. Yeah, like we we basically yeah I would kind of kind of come up with the parts and then send it to them and then they would you know kind of learn the parts and then by the time we got together we went through the songs a couple of times before we recorded them and then that was it we just put it down and recorded it yeah so well, it's amazing because you know um, a lot of the guys don't. I mean, none of the guys can read music. So for them, you know, it's, it comes from, it's an, it's an oral tradition. So they learn just by listening and they have amazing ears. Um, so they would pick out the melodies and it was really funny because when we were working on their original record, I would say to them, okay, you know what, this is going to be like a C sharp minor chord. And they would look and go, okay, you know, and so. What the heck is we that? Were, yeah. And, you know. So and, and how did you communicate what it was? Would you yeah. do just pick it on your, you yeah. know, guitar yeah. string? Yeah, yeah, and then they would play it. And this was the same thing, you know, if I had to mm-hmm. ask them for a part that they were doing, they couldn't articulate the idea that it was like, this is the, the certain, you know, amount of notes. So they would just say, hey, this is how it goes, and play it. And so it, it really, when they say, you know, that, that cliche that music is a universal language, it's true, because uh, you just play and everybody understands everything that goes on. The Fonfari guys, uh, what is this their day job? Or, you know, as you said, they're from like a Balkan uh, town in Romania, a small ba- Balkan town, or do they have day jobs? No, 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 this is all they do, yeah. I, I mean, from okay. the village they're from, there's 400 people that live in the village, and you're either yeah. a horn player or you're a, a farmer. So it it's basically kind of works that way. So they have an amazing tradition of this this lineage of horn players. And so it's it's really interesting stuff. I love. I actually. 
sorry. Uh, no, it just it actually dates back to the Ottoman Empire, right? Uh, these they you know uh, back then they would put a horn section at the front of the army just to scare the other people. So <laughs> really, yeah, that's the legend. And so when they weren't being you know aggressive with their horn playing, then they <laughs> took it back to their villages and they tried to you know relate to the public. Yeah, and you know what? In their tradition, it's wedding music. So what? when you were, when you would have a wedding, you would hire a band like this. There's many of these these Balkan brass bands, and they literally, when they do a wedding, it's like a three day event, and these guys play like twelve hours at a time. So they're they're amazing players. Yeah, I'm embarrassed to say because I am a music fan that you weren't on my radar before this, Adrian. We're speaking with Ray Adrian Rasso, who's a guitarist out of Guelph, but um, just, you know, doing some investigation into Ernst Street Tavern, which was used on the latest Borat movie, which I want to get to the story of how that happened in a sec. I have to say the video that accompanies that song uh, is absolutely stellar. I love how artistic it is. And I- I'm going to download the whole album because I think uh, it's it's some fantastic stuff. And it's, it's a pleasure that it- it's coming from somebody who is here based just around the corner from Toronto. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, no, it's it's really cool. It's, it's interesting music, that's for sure. Okay, so you <laughs> found out about the the band that you play with um, on the first Borat movie. How did it come about that you guys were featured in this tune, uh, featured in the Borat soundtrack this time around? Okay, so so what happened, of course, is we released Devil's Tale, and Devil's Tale went number one through all the European world music charts. So it was a huge success, and we ended up doing a tour, a world tour with that, which was really fun. And then you kind of assume that, okay, this is, is kind of done now, so we're going to move on, and you start working on other projects. And then in the meantime, for, you know, it's 14 years later, and we our management was informed that, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen was going to be making a Borat 2. We were like 14 years later. That's crazy. But anyway, right. he, yep. He he went forward and he said, uh, reached out to the label and he said, hey, you know what? We need a whole bunch of this music uh, for the film. And uh, what could you send? And and um, so the label sent all the records. And then um, one song that they wanted to use was Ern Street Tavern. Then uh, that became uh, part of the soundtrack after that point. And did you know how they were going to use it in the film? And can you tell us where they use it? Um, okay. Yeah. I had no clue, uh, you know, where they were going to use it. And then even when I was doing like a, a lot of press for this, uh, people just before this was coming out, uh, they were saying, you know, well, are you in or not in? And I said, I have no idea. Cause the whole movie was top secret. He didn't, he didn't uh, want anyone or any parts really leaking. And so, um, I had no idea if it was even going to be used. Um, but when you watch the film, it's the scene where you're going to see a scene where he travels with a gentleman into the southern states and stays there for, for a few days, and that's uh, the lead-in music for that, that scene. Yeah, okay. And these are the, t- these are the two QAnon guys? That's, that's right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you've seen the film. Uh, oh, I've seen the film. I, I'm not kidding. I, 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 you were, I did take notice of... Uh, of your music, and then you were on my radar, but I uh, I had no idea that you were uh, so close to us here in Guelph, Ontario. Yeah, yeah, just just very close. It's it is strange because it's yeah, it's strange to find a Canadian that's in that that kind of scene of music. But yeah, yeah. yeah. How did you get into the the that gypsy music? Um, when I was a kid, I, I mean, I, I started to listening to this stuff, and I remember. I, I got, uh, it would have been a cassette tape at that time and, and heard some traditional gypsy stuff. And I thought, wow, this, this is incredible. And then when I found out later down the road that it was Django Reinhardt, 
Mm-hmm. And he was doing all this this stuff with two fingers. Of course, I was like, wow, this is this is insane. So I, I kind of started dedicating myself to, uh, I do use all four fingers. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's really, You know, really... Django Reinhardt. Yeah, yeah, um, it's, exactly. It's it's just unbelievable that he could play it. I mean, it's very quick music. Now, I guess that wouldn't serve you the same way as Led Zeppelin would at a house party as a kid in high school, but you've done so well for yourself. Adrian, where can we find your tunes? Um, well, you can go to the website, of course, my website, which is com. And uh, otherwise, anywhere, I mean, you know, if you, you go uh, with any of the iTunes stuff or Apple Music or anywhere, it's everywhere, so... Well, congratulations. It's nice to have the notoriety of of being featured in in another film. I understand you're working on soundtracks, and I would love to talk to you at length about what you're up to, but i got to wrap this up because the show is uh, over, but it's a nice way to close it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the support. really appreciate it. Thanks so much for being here. That's Adrian Rasso. He's a musician out of Guelph, Ontario, on the Borat soundtrack. Borat 2, if you're watching over the weekend, the QAnon scene, keep your ears open for Adrian's music and check it out. It really is something I think I'm going to fall down the rabbit hole and listen to over the weekend. All right. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We broadcast live Monday through Friday from nine till noon. Hopefully you can join us. If not, don't forget, you can always subscribe to the podcast. Then you can get lazy about it and it'll be ready for you whenever you want it. Just go to wherever you download your podcast, type in my name, Kelly Gutrera, and subscribe there. Have a great day.